I want to thank you for subscribing to our podcast and for listening today. Feel free if you would like uh, to rate and review us. Uh, we would also love to connect with you. If you would like to, to speak to a pastor or if you would want more information about our church, you can text CONNECT to 903 586 6520 and we will uh, certainly follow up with you. If you would like to uh, support the ministry here at, at Fellowship Bible Church, uh, we would greatly appreciate that. Uh, we have worked hard to improve our, our video quality and our online capabilities so that you can watch us during this uh, difficult time away safely from a distance. So uh, if, you would, if you would like to support the ministry here, you can text GIVE to the same number, 903-586-6520. We would greatly appreciate your support. And again, thank you for listening in. Before we get going, I, I do need to make mention of this. I forgot to mention it at the beginning, but we do want to uh, uh, praise the Lord for uh, bringing our mission team back safely from Costa Rica, John and Kevin and Brent. We'll be hearing more from them in the weeks to come about the work taking place there. But thank you for praying. Thank you for supporting them. And guys, thank you for answering the call to go and serve. Well, last week we, we discussed a strange response by King Jesus to his Jewish nation. While he receives a warm greeting from them in Luke 19, 28 through 40, a, a, a greeting fit for a king, in verses 41 through 44, Jesus responds with a harsh rebuke for good reason. They, they expected him, Jesus, and in typical kingly fashion to respond when entering into Jerusalem like a king would, taking up arms, forming an army, crushing the Romans, liberating them from the bondage of Roman rule. That's what they're wanting. He instead rebukes them for being hard-hearted, and unbelieving. While he showed compassion toward them in that he, he wept over them, he also responded to them by sharing with them a message of God's coming judgment. He tells them, the days will come upon you when your enemies will, will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side. That is a strange response from the king of the Jewish people after receiving this, this warm, royal welcome by them. And, and guess what? He's not finished. He has more unexpected things to do and to say during this final week we call Holy Week before laying his life down. And we're going to look at one of these events this morning, if you have your Bibles, turn back to Luke 19. We're in a new section of Luke. We've been there for a few weeks now. We're studying Jesus' ministry in Jerusalem before his arrest and trial and death and resurrection. It covers a week. 
All right, covers about a week of time. The events in 45 through 48 take place on Monday of that week. On Sunday was Jesus' royal entry, okay? So that'll kind of help you with the timeline. We're, we're told as he drew near, he saw the city, he weeps over their lost and sinful state, and he offers some harsh words of judgment toward them for their rejection of him. We're told in Mark's gospel that on the same day he entered the temple, he looked around and he, he saw everything. He obviously had a lot of things to say. He saw a lot of things he didn't like, but because it was late, Mark tells us in his account that he went back out of the city with the 12 to stay the night at Bethany. On the next day, he returns to the temple and what he does there is shocking to say the least. Let's read what happens and then we'll study it further. Luke 19, verses 45 through 48. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, it is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple, the chief priest and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. Once again, shocking response from a king. Several things Jesus does here that, that completely floors the Jewish people. While some were, were, were thinking he might be the Messiah, they learned pretty quickly that he was not the Messiah that they were looking for. His actions, we're going to see, while biblical, were surprising to many. Look at what he does compared to what they were expecting. This is going to be our outline. Point number one, and we'll keep it up for a while because they're lengthy points. While they were expecting the Messiah to storm the structures that housed Roman rulers, Jesus stormed the Jewish temple that housed religious leaders. Look at verse 45 again. And he entered the temple, and he began to drive out those who sold. At this time, there were structures strategically built in, in place throughout the Roman Empire that housed Roman soldiers. There were also structures built for, for kings and governors who had been appointed by Rome to serve in these particular places throughout the empire. The famous fortress in Jerusalem was, was Fort Antonia. King Herod named it after his good friend, Mark Antony. It stood 75 feet high, and it overlooked the temple. The Roman soldiers could, could look out from that fort, and they could look right down into the courtyard of the temple and monitor the activity there. Pilate also had a house nearby. He was appointed leader there in, in 
uh, over the Jewish people in Israel, these military bases, these homes were a reminder to the Jewish people that they were not free, okay? They were under Roman rule. Their expectation was the Messiah would come and he would defeat these tyrannical leaders and armies and free the Jewish nation once again from oppression and tyranny. That's what they were expecting. They were expecting a work like like Moses, right? A work that God used Moses to do to deliver God's people from Egyptian bondage. They they were hoping Christ would come and free them from, from oppression and the occupation of Rome. What does Jesus do instead? He storms the temple. That's shocking. MacArthur said this of this event. Look at this quote. Jesus attacks the soul of the nation. He attacks the most respected, the most elevated, the most trusted of all people in the land. Those who ostensibly represented God. Why? Because they're the most corrupt. Surprise, surprise. Jesus doesn't attack the place that housed the pagan, idolatrous, and oppressive Romans. He attacked the place that housed the legalistic, self-righteous, corrupt, money-loving, hypocritical, power-hungry religious leaders. To Jesus, the issue was not ultimately Roman occupation, it's religious corruption. His concern was not Rome's relationship to his people, but his people's relationship to God. His issue was not them being enslaved to Rome, but them being enslaved to sin. His issue was not the condition of his nation politically, but the condition of their hearts spiritually. That's why he storms the temple. Really makes you think, If Jesus were to return in this way today and do a similar work, where do you think he'd go? To Washington? The White House? The halls of Congress? Where would he clean house? His concern is for the temple of God. Where is the temple of God today? Paul tells us, 1 Corinthians 3.16, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? Now, a little knowledge of the Greek language helps us here. The you here is plural, okay? So in southern Texan Greek, it's y'all, all right? Texan Greek is y'all. Y'all are God's temple. He's talking about the church here. I know you've heard it said before that the church is not a building, it's the people. That's exactly right, but it's even more than that. The church, according to Paul in 1 Corinthians, is God's temple. And the reason why is because it is filled with God's people who are indwelled with the very Spirit of God. So the Holy Spirit indwells each and every believer, and as a result, He dwells within the church collectively. That's how it works. This is is a very special place. 
in a very special time when we gather together corporately. Jesus is very concerned with what takes place here week in and week out. Very concerned. Jesus is concerned today about churches where worship is corrupted, truth has been deserted, prayer has been neglected, mission has been abandoned, and love has been forsaken. Very concerned. This text should remind us, church, that we are God's temple because God's Spirit dwells within us. Therefore, Christ is very concerned with what we do with the time that we have set aside for corporate worship. There are many ideas today. If we were to go around the room, we would get some of those. Many ideas about what the activity of the church should be. I think the church should be this. I think the church should do that. It doesn't really matter what we think. God has told us clearly what this time is to be about. This time is to be a time when we focus our attention collectively toward who God is and what He has done for us. It's to be a time when we grow in our knowledge of Him through the study of His Word and to be a time when we respond to Him in praise and in confession. It is to be a time when we express our great need of God to work in our hearts and lives and our need of Him to guide and direct us so that we'll live for Him. It's to be a time when we get equipped established in truth so that we're equipped for ministry through the corporate gathering together with his people through the study of his word it's a time when we come to get ready to do the work that God has called for us to do it's to be a time when we're reminded of our great commission that's why we take time to have missions emphasis each and every summer and when we try to emphasize it as much as we can it's to be a time when we're reminded of that great commission that we've been called to and it's to be a time that we recommit ourselves again and again to be witnesses for Christ and to make disciples of all nations so that God's gospel can spread so that his kingdom can advance so that he may be known and worshiped where he is not known and worshiped by all peoples everywhere period that is to be what this time is for and as long as I'm here that's what I'm committed to do and I invite you to join me on this mission. May we strive by God's grace to faithfully continue this work here. Notice another shocking thing King Jesus does. Not only does he storm the temple, but he drives out the religious leaders. Another long point here, I apologize. While they were expecting the Messiah to remove Roman rulers from their places of authority, Jesus removed the Jewish religious leaders from their place of worship. Verse 45, And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold. This is the second time that Jesus has done this, by the way. John records a similar event at the beginning of Jesus' ministry in John chapter 2. At the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry, he cleanses the temple, and here we have him doing it once again. Unfortunately, not a lot has changed with the Jewish religious leaders from the beginning to the end. 
of Jesus' ministry. Notice he goes from tears to anger. At first he enters Jerusalem and we're told he is weeping as he observes the lost and sinful state of his people. Then he moves from weeping over his nation to furiously driving out their wicked leaders from the temple. And he has very good reason for doing this. It's Passover. There's a crowd at the temple. People had traveled from all over to come to the temple to offer sacrifice for sins. God's people are told in Deuteronomy chapter 12 to bring sacrifices from their own flocks. In Jesus' day, the religious leaders had, had set up a system for buying and selling and trading animals for an approved sacrifice. They also exchanged money at the temple to pay the temple tax. Traveling with animals, you could bring your own to potentially offer up for sacrifice, but it was very risky business because if that animal got injured somewhere along the way, it may not pass the inspection for a suitable sacrifice. Also, the law required those 20 years of age and older to, to pay an annual temple tax as an offering to God. That's taken from Exodus chapter 30. Because they were coming from Roman occupied lands, they had Roman currency that needed to be exchanged for Jewish currency. You with me? Here's the problem. The buying and selling of animals and money exchange had become big business for the Jewish people. The religious leaders looked at this as an opportunity to get rich. You could choose to bring your own animals for, for sacrifice and, and maybe brave the travel and, and bring that animal there healthy, but the chances of too many of those animals passing the eye test of those in authority was slim. They were going to make their money. Those of you that have ever brought your family to a theme park in the summertime, you kind of understand this racket, right? There's a reason why in the hot sun we're not able to bring our own drinks in and our own food. Because in the heat of the day, when we're thirsty and when we're hungry, they want you buying their $8 slice of pizza and their $6 drink, right? They want you to pay up. The religious leaders were running up the price. They were overcharging those coming in need for an animal, for sacrifice. Their exchange rates were also being abused. Whenever you travel overseas, I know our guys had to deal with this. It's important to know where to go to find a good exchange rate from U.S. dollars to the usable currency in the country you're visiting. And while some try to abuse those exchange rates, the good news is you usually have a lot of places that you can choose from. And if you have a connection with one of the locals there, they know the place to go. Here's the problem. Here, Jewish people had one place to exchange money. And they're getting treated unfairly. 
The chance to make money off of foreigners traveling in to the city was very tempting for those in positions of of leadership. This activity, it, it drew many to this place for a piece of this pie, for a piece of the profit, which turned the outer courts of the temple into a marketplace rather than a place for God's people to gather for worship. You see, the temple at this time, let me, bear with me for a minute, let me give you the breakdown of the temple. It was made up of several outer courts, okay? You have the first court was the court of the Gentiles. Anyone was allowed into into this court, okay? The court of the Gentiles, it was available to anyone in this day. This would be a place where Gentile converts to Judaism, we call them God-fearers, this is where they gathered for worship. And they were not allowed past that point. Beyond that was the court of the women. Only Jewish men and women were allowed in that court. And we'll return to that court later in, uh, in our study of Holy Week because a woman's going to give a significant offering there. And so we're going to talk about what takes place in the court of the women. Beyond that, you had, you had the, uh, the, the court which was only for Jewish men. Okay? Only Jewish men could go into that inner court and from there they could, they could look into the inner courtyard of the temple and they could see the priests doing their priestly duties, offering incense and, and sacrificing animals and beyond that was the temple where the holy place and the most holy place were. The court of the Gentiles was the focus here of Jesus because it had become a place of Business, the business of buying and selling animals needed for sacrifice, the exchanging of money for temple, uh, the temple tax, it took place there as well. When Jesus witnesses this corrupt business, he gets angry. In John 2, we're, we're told he made a whip of cords to drive them out. He might have done that again here. We don't know. What we do know in the other accounts is that he turned over the tables of the money changers and drives them out. He cost them a ton of money on this day, by the way, by doing that. He flipped their tables and their stools and he sent them running. This act, by the way, would win him favor with the crowd for good reason, right? He, he just saved them from being cheated out of a bunch of money. So they're going to come in the following days. They're going to continue to gather in the temple to hear from Jesus. So it won him favor with the crowd for a time. But this act would also drive an even bigger wedge between he and the religious community. We're told here the chief priest and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. The problem was Jesus was extremely popular at this point. During Holy Week, all of these people had come in for Passover from out of town. They were gathering in to hear from him now, right? He had earned an audience with them, so they don't know what to do. Later, someone's going to approach them with a way to apprehend Jesus. We'll talk about that more later when we look at Judas's betrayal. But think about the court of the Gentiles and what's taking place there for a moment. The court of the Gentiles could have been a great place for ministry, couldn't it have? 
It was a place where, where the Jews could witness to their, their pagan neighbors telling them about the one true and living God. The inner court for the Jewish people could have been a place in the temple where the Jewish leaders were committed to pray for the coming and the growth of God's kingdom. Instead, the Gentile courts have become a place of business and profit, a place of corruption and dishonest gain. And the inner court where the Jewish men were had become a den of robbers, Jesus says. One, they're robbing their fellow man monetarily, but they're robbing the Gentiles spiritually. The temple was to be a place where God's people were to commune with Him, to pray for others. Instead, it became a place where they neglected God and they prayed upon others. It was a den of robbers. There's a great question by way of application for us to ask ourselves as we consider this time of corporate worship and what it is for us and what we have made it. What have you made this place? What have you made this time? What have you, by your motives and by your actions, what have we collectively made this place? The Jews in Jesus' day made the temple a place of profit, a den of robbers. Why are you here? What's your motivation for coming? Are you here just to be with other people? You view this time just... As a social gathering, in your mind, is it like a, a, another social club, like those that exist in this community? Is this a place you come just to keep your kids and grandkids in line? Are you just here for them? I've had parents, grandparents tell me over the years, I'm, I'm really here for them, that's it. Is that why you're here? And hope your kids and grandkids will be taught upright so they'll act right and stay out of trouble. Are you here because you think you can earn points with God? Is that the reason you're here? You believe the church is a place where you can flip the scales in your favor through outward acts of religious devotion? Do you believe that God's keeping a tally on what you do and don't do and by getting up semi-early, and getting dressed and driving five miles across town, you'll cancel out all the bad things you've done the week prior. What's your motive for being here? What if Christ were to walk through those doors? What if the one who sees into the core of who you are, the one who sees your heart, what would he say about you? You're going to be challenged in your study guide this week to wrestle with why you're here and what's the true reason we're to be gathered here, which I shared in the previous point. Let God deal with you on these things. Pray that God give you the grace that you need. Pray that He do the work in your heart that needs to be done so that you do keep the Lord's day, the Lord's way. Pray for him to do a work. Next point. While the religious leaders were expecting to be commended for their righteousness, they were condemned for their wickedness. 
The Jewish religious leaders honestly believed if there was anyone guaranteed a prominent place in God's kingdom, it was them. They believed that God's Messiah was going to come and He was going to see them and He was going to gush over them and He was going to publicly commend them for their outward acts of obedience and for the, the, the numerous sacrifices they made in their service to God. When Jesus enters into Jerusalem, He goes to the temple not to commend them, but to condemn them. Why? Verse 46 again, Jesus said, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Now, whenever Jesus says, It is written, here's Bible Study 101. When you hear that, know Jesus is quote, about to quote Old Testament. He's about to refer back to the Old Testament. If he says, have you not heard? It is written. Then he's about to go Old Testament on them, okay? So, so that's what he's doing here. While many Jews in Jesus' day, they believe that Jesus' actions here are out of character with God's King, His Messiah. By pronouncing judgment on the Jewish nation and driving out money changers from the temple, Jesus shows them that He's doing nothing more than acting in accordance with the Word of God. His actions here are in fact a fulfillment of Scripture. The prophets Isaiah and Jeremiah prophesied of what the temple would be and how it would be defiled. Let's look at these passages. I've got them up on the screen. First, Isaiah 56, 6 through 7. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. They, their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples." Then he quotes Jeremiah 7, 11. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. Jesus reminds his Jewish audience of what the temple was supposed to be and what they had made it. In Jesus' day, the, the wall that separated Jew and Gentile was high and wide and seemingly impenetrable. The Jewish people, they believed that they were the ones who were loved and favored by God and all other nations were second rate at best. While they made room for God-fearers, Gentile converts to Judaism, they kept their distance from them. The Gentile court again in the temple, outer court, accessible for, for any, and it had become a distracting and worldly ungodly place of profit, not much different than the marketplace. The Jewish religious leaders had made the place that was to be a house of prayer for the nations, a place of trade to fatten their wallets, a den of debauchery. They had lost sight over the years of the fact that God had chosen them, yes, favored them, yes, blessed them, yes, to be a blessing. God had chosen the Jewish people to be the channel through which His blessings flowed out to the nations of the world. Is that not what God promised Abraham 
all the way back in Genesis chapter 12, 1 through 3. You're going to read that passage and discuss it today, this week in your, in your study guide. He said, through you, all nations will be blessed. The Jewish people had lost sight of this. They had missed this. They had messed this up. Instead of viewing themselves as a channel through which the nations would be blessed, they viewed themselves as a bucket. It's just all to be poured out on us. They viewed God just poured out all His blessing on, in, in favor on them and no one else. One commentator put it in this way, the special privilege God meant as a tool for witness for the Jews became an excuse for carnal, selfish, self-glorification and pride. They had missed it. As we said a moment ago, the Gentile gathering on Passover at the temple, it was a, a golden opportunity for the religious leaders to be a blessing to the non-Jews. Jesus quotes Isaiah to show that foreigners who join themselves to the Lord, those who draw near to Him in worship of Him, those who love the one true and living God and commit to serve Him, they're received by God. Listen, if they're received by God, newsflash, they should be received by His people. We should treat God's people the exact same way. If they're accepted by God, received by Him, they should most certainly be received by us. They should have been on the lookout for opportunities to minister to the Gentiles coming to God in this way in the outer court. They should have been praying for them. They should have been a help to them and not a hindrance, a channel through which God's blessings flow instead of a major obstacle of worship for them. I wonder when we gather whether or not we're being a help or a hindrance for the gospel. Are you being a help or a hindrance in the way you live your life Monday through Saturday? Your spouse, kids, family, neighbors, co-workers, church members see Christ in you. Is your Christian life Consistent with your Christian confession? Great questions of application to ask yourself. Are you being a help? Are you being a hindrance to the gospel? Are you praying for the lost? Are you praying that the hearers of the gospel message each and every week would respond in repentance and faith? There are many listening who need to respond in repentance and faith. Are you praying for them? Are you praying that they would come under conviction? that they would be brought to their knees in repentance and to the feet of Jesus in faith? Are you praying for them? Are you taking opportunities to, to share your faith with those God has put into your life? Are you sharing of the hope you have in Christ? Christ drove out and condemned these religious leaders for being a hindrance to his gospel message. I wonder what he would do for us, to us, individually. Then notice what Jesus does. After driving them out, he stayed in the temple to do what they failed to do. I love that. He's going to lead by example. Look at verse 47 and 48. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priest and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do 
for all the people were hanging on His words. He was teaching daily in the temple, Jews and Gentiles. What was He teaching? We'll look at uh, Luke chapter 20, verse 1. Don't worry, I'm not going through Luke 20 as well, okay? Just verse 1, first part of verse 1, look at it. What was He teaching? Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel. That's what He was doing. Jesus was preaching the gospel. What's the gospel? Well, let me teach you a simple way to remember it. God, man, Christ, response. Okay? God, man, Christ, response. God is holy. Man is sinful. Christ is Savior. And a response to Christ is therefore necessary. Right? That's a... Simple way to remember the gospel. you got to hit those points. God, man, Christ, response. God is holy. He created man to love him and live for him. Man sinned against God, and God in turn set himself against man. But God demonstrated his love for us in that while we were sinners, God sent Christ to live and die and rise again to make a way for sinful man to be restored to holy God. And the only way to be restored to God through Christ is by responding to the work that Christ accomplished for us. And the only right response is repentance and faith. We must turn from our sin. We must repent of our sin. And we must place our faith and trust in Christ alone for salvation. That's the gospel. Some of you are like, that's what he was teaching? I don't know word for word. But that's the gospel. That's the gospel. That's the message Jesus has been sharing all the way to Jerusalem. He said all the way back in Luke 9, 22, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Then he repeats it again in Luke 18, 31. And then the angels repeat it. Why are you here? Looking for the living among the dead. He told you. He shared this gospel message with you. He is not dead. He's alive. That's the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. The message of God's holiness and man's sinfulness and Christ's saving work and man's response of repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. That's the good news. Fellowship, that's the message we proclaim. That's the message we stand firmly upon that's the hope that we have. That's the, that's the joy in our hearts. That's the song that comes from our lips. That's what motivates our actions. That's what keeps us firm and steadfast in a broken and fallen world. The question for you today is, those of you listening, what will your response be to this message? Will you respond like the religious leaders with unbelief and rejection or like Christ's true disciples with repentance and faith, I urge you today, if you have not, turn from your sin, forsake your way, lay your life down before the King of glory, King Jesus, place your faith and trust in Him alone for your salvation and be saved today. Do that today and be saved. Let's pray.